From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. But it's been special in my adulthood to learn how to make these things myself and then and then be the one to bring it to my family. This week on our show, we talk with Monet Nazila Gorbani, president of the Nauru's Student Association at Indiana University, about celebrating the Persian New Year. She shares her favorite Iranian dish, perfect for celebrating the arrival of spring. And from Harvest Public Media, two stories about rivers and agriculture. All that and more just ahead, so stay with us. is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Biden administration is fighting climate change in part by pushing for cars and trucks to be more fuel efficient and reduce emissions. But so far, there hasn't been talk about another mode of transportation and its future within the move toward green energy. Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports on the barge industry's outlook and what effect it may have on Midwestern rivers and agriculture. Every year, Mike Beller drives a semi-truck more than 100 miles from his farm in Howard, Kansas, to the port of Catoosa in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The trailer is filled with about 57,000 pounds of soybeans. This winter, we took 70, I think it's 70 semi-loads down. Beller's soybeans are put on barges that float down the McClellan-Kerr Navigation System, a water highway that connects the Arkansas River to the Mississippi. The soybeans are eventually loaded onto ships and delivered worldwide. Barges use a lot less gas and have a lot more capacity than trucks or trains. Beller says those savings make the six-hour round trip worth it. The best prices go out on the barges. I I think it's really, it, it gives us a market. It's extremely important. Farmers have relied on the system for 50 years. Former President Richard Nixon spoke at the grand opening of the Port of Catoosa in 1971 and noted the savings go both ways. Lower shipping costs coming in mean that the farmer pays less for his fertilizer, machinery, and other supplies. And lower shipping costs going out. David Yarborough is the director of Tulsa Ports. He says one barge can carry 1,500 tons of grain, fertilizer, or soybeans. That's equal to 60 semi-trucks. Now, think about a single towboat on our system pushing multiple barges. 
let's say 12. 12 barges pushed by one towboat. Now you have the equivalent of 720 semi-trucks replaced by one towboat. But in 2019, record rains and flooding caused problems like sandbars that closed the port for months. Farmers like Beller couldn't put grain or soybeans on barges. Instead, he had to store his grain until he could ship it in the fall. His biggest issue, though, was that he couldn't get fertilizer from the port. Instead, he had to get it from Missouri, and it was pricey. Fertilizer's cheaper coming up on a barge than coming in by rail or, or truck, and that, that's why it cost me more is on the fertilizer end. Yarborough says it took most of the year for the Army Corps of Engineers to dredge and make other repairs so the port could get back to normal. It was frustrating because we're at the end of the line and all of the dredging and operations to restore the channel have to start downstream and work their way upstream. Congress controls the money needed for repairs. This year, the Corps was given $26 million for this inland waterway. It also received more than $100 million for flood repairs in 2019. Despite that, there's still a huge backlog of about $225 million for maintenance on structures, like gates that help regulate the flow of the river. This number seems to grow drastically each year. That's Thaddeus Babb the Waterways Program Manager for the Oklahoma Department of Transportation. A lot of times what happens is they have to take what amount they do have for this and put kind of a Band-Aid fix on it, something to get it to last a little longer. But again, that doesn't necessarily always take it off of the critical list. The backlog has many people like Yarborough worried. He says the system was designed well, but it needs attention. He compares the situation to car maintenance. That car runs well and it's got good tires, but when you put a lot of miles on it, things are going to need to be replaced. Tires get bald, the oil needs to be changed, you know, you need to, you need to take care of that car. If you don't, it will let you down at some point. If something breaks, it could back up traffic for days or longer. Some are hoping the $17 billion for inland waterways and the president's infrastructure bill will help repair and modernize the McClellan Kerr and keep soybeans flowing from Kansas all the way to China. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. This story is part three of Harvest Public Media's multi-part series on rivers and waterways in agriculture. Later in the show, we bring you another story from the river series from Dana Cronin on water quality. Find more on this series at harvestpublicmedia.org. March 20th was the day of the spring equinox this year. The Persian New Year celebration known as Nowruz coincides with the spring equinox. Persians are not the only ones who celebrate Nowruz, and the traditions vary from culture to culture. The Nowruz Student Association at Indiana University typically plans a week-long celebration involving dancing and food, but this year, it all had to be virtual. I spoke with the president of the Nauru Student Association, Monet Nazila Gorbani. She organized a cooking demonstration of a popular Iranian dish 
that is often associated with the spring holiday. I joined the virtual workshop where participants prepared the dish in our own separate kitchens in real time while Monet walked us through the steps. She sent out an ingredient list ahead of time and thankfully with enough lead time to locate a few of the hard to find ingredients. The two ingredients that were most unfamiliar are also crucial to the dish. Kashk is the first one. It's referred to as whey. It's a dairy product. We found it in a quart-sized jar in the refrigerated section of World Foods Market in Bloomington, formerly known as Sahara Mart. It's thick and creamy, the color of tahini, with a tangy, salty flavor. The other special ingredient is the reshta. They're long, straight noodles, flat and thick and made from wheat. I can't think of another noodle that would behave exactly like these do, so if possible, it's best not to substitute them. Those were also easy to locate at World Foods Market in Bloomington. Fenugreek leaves, sometimes known as methi, were also on the list, though Monet said they were optional. The rest of the ingredients were more familiar. About two large onions, garlic, two pounds of spinach, two bunches of parsley, two bunches of dill, one bunch of chives, one bunch of mint. And if you couldn't get all of those herbs in exactly that quantity, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Turmeric, salt and pepper, dried mint, fenugreek, optional. I like to just throw it in because I have it. Your favorite broth or just water if you'd like. Lentils, chickpeas, and white beans. After some brief introductions, we dove right into the cooking. Monet had instructed us to soak the dried white beans and chickpeas overnight and to have the greens washed and chopped and the onions and garlic sliced and ready to go. We set aside about a quarter cup of the onions to make into a garnish later. The first step is to saute the onions in oil until golden. This will take about 15 minutes. Then add the garlic and about a tablespoon of salt, a tablespoon of turmeric, a handful of fenugreek, a pinch of the dried mint if you like, and some freshly ground pepper. Yeah, it's funny because I used to get so, not mad with my grandma, but a little bit annoyed sometimes when she would be making like some delicious Persian dish and I would want to learn. And I would try to like come with like my notebook and be like, okay, how much of this exactly did you do? And then what did you do? But she couldn't tell me because she just did it, you know? <laughs> then add the soaked white beans and chickpeas, the lentils and the broth. Once the broth is hot, start adding all of your prepared greens. I forgot to mention that you'll need a pretty big pot for all of this. This includes chives or scallions, fresh mint, parsley, dill, and mounds of spinach. Also, the greens really do like, cook down. So when we're at that step and you're throwing them in, you're like, how is this? You might need to do this in stages, allowing the greens to cook down a bit so that you can fit them all in the pot. Once they're in, Put the lid on, turn the heat down, and let it all simmer for about an hour. The workshop was friendly and informal. We chatted as we cooked, asked questions along the way, and Monet routinely checked I'm in curious. on our progress. Where everyone is, are we adding our greens at this point? Still chopping a little bit, perhaps? People shared stories about food from their travels and times living in other countries, like Afghanistan. We discussed the difference between fenugreek seeds, powder, and leaves. And Monet talked about making Persian ice cream. I started from scratch with boiling the milk, adding the saffron and sugar, 
lots of cream, rose water eventually. It turned out well. The hardest part was getting it to turn into ice cream in the right way, even though I don't have a churn. So basically I kept putting it in the freezer for 30 minutes, taking it out, mixing it, putting it back. Rosewater pistachio saffron. It's very yellow from the saffron. It's delicious. Very, especially if you're not used to very aromatic flavors, like rosewater and saffron, it kind of messes with your senses the first time you try it. But yeah, super delicious. One of my favorite things, for sure. We took a break while the Osh cooked, and we came back together to play a trivia game that Monet set up on Cahoots. We downloaded the app on our phones and logged into the game. The topic was the spice trade. Which spice are Bedouin nomads since ancient times known for always having on hand? Mostly, we didn't know yeah, the answers, but we had fun and we learned some random facts about herbs and spices. All right. So the answer is cardamom. Cardamom is the third most expensive spice in the world. Linguistically, the cardamom trade is traced By the time we finished, we were ready for the next steps in the dish. It was time to add the kashk. It's pretty thick, so we ladled some of the broth into a bowl with the measured kashk and mixed it until it was nice and smooth. Then we stirred it into the soup. Next, snap the reshta noodles in half and drop them into the pot. Once you've added the kashk, we are going to add the reshta noodles. Just take them out, put them in half, drop them in the pot. You'll want to stir it. I had to keep stirring and using tongs to keep the noodles separated. They're prone to clumping up. Then put the lid back on and cook over medium-low heat for another 30 minutes to get the noodles cooked. Stir the pot occasionally, and if it gets too thick, you can add a bit of hot water. So it can't be too hot, but it needs to be hot enough to cook the noodles. Meanwhile, prepare the garnishes. Those few garnishes. Fry the onions we set aside earlier until they're crispy, but not burnt. I had to do this twice because I burned the first batch. Mix some dried mint in a small pan with oil to make a paste and heat just until warm and fragrant. Then mix a bit more of the kash with some broth in a small bowl. Once the noodles are ready, you can serve the ashi reshte. Spoon a generous amount of the stew into a bowl Swirl in some of the kashk in the center, sprinkle on the fried onions, and drizzle a bit of the mint paste across the top. We all sampled the dish, and everyone was pleased. More than one person noted how comforting it was, and that surprised me. When I think of comfort food, I think of the foods from my own past. This dish was unfamiliar in almost every way. The tangy flavor of the ashk with the now sauce-like greens, the fenugreek leaves, and the texture of those thick noodles. Yet somehow the combination felt warm and soothing, like comfort food. Not everyone in the workshop made the dish. A few just wanted to hang out and learn. One of the participants was worried she had made too much so she arranged to bring a portion to someone in town who had not made the dish. I will warn you that Monet's recipe makes a lot of food. A half recipe is plenty for four people, and you'll still have leftovers. 
We have a photo of my dish, and the complete recipe for Ashi Reshte is on our website at eartheats.org. After a short break, we'll talk with Monet Gorbani about what cooking Iranian food means to her. Stay with us. sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast. Just search for Earth Eats wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and it helps other people find us. Kate Young, this is Earth Eats, and we're back with Monet Nazila Gorbani. She's the president of the Nauru's Student Association at Indiana University. Monet is a second-year graduate student in international affairs with a focus on Central Asia. She is originally from Arizona, which is where she was when we spoke via Zoom in late March. I wanted to talk with her about the virtual cooking workshop she led in celebration of Nauru's this spring. I hosted a cooking workshop to teach a group of people how to cook one of my favorite Persian dishes that I grew up eating named Ashavishne. And it's a vegetarian dish, there's no meat in it. The primary ingredients are a lot of herbs, whey or cash, noodles and beans. And I don't know, I think it was just always my favorite food growing up because it's just really comforting. I also have a lot of fond memories of like always knowing when my grandma was over when I would open the the door after I came home from school I'd open the garage door and if I got like slammed in the face with the smell of fried onions then then I knew my grandma was home because also Persian food takes a long time to cook so if you're going to be eating around dinner then you have to start cooking around like four or five so that was usually around the time that I would come home anyway. The workshop which you heard about in the first part of the show took place on a Saturday and lasted about two and a half hours, though not all of that was active cooking time. The idea was that we wouldn't just watch Monet prepare the dish, we would make it at home during the workshop for a shared but distanced culinary experience. Participants prepared for the class by watching a video that Monet recorded, walking through the steps and listing all of the ingredients. There were a couple of special ingredients that weren't available at the standard grocery store, so it was good to have the list ahead of time to make sure we all had what we needed. 
I was struck by Monet's straightforward approach to the dish and how there didn't seem to be a lot of room for variation or improvisation. Persian food is interesting because it's very nationalized in a way. Like there are all of these dishes and it's not like every family has their own variation of this dish. For the most part, everybody knows how it should taste and you're not supposed to really stray too far from that. So like Asharishtit is a very Iranian dish and if you made it different, I just don't really know how you could really make it that different and have it be still be Ash. A few more greens or a few more beans, but things like Khoreshe, Gorma Sabzi, Khoreshe Fesinjun, for the most part, they always taste the same. Either you make it really well or you don't make it very well, but like, you're not really throwing in all these crazy adaptations to it. So I think it's just a little bit different than like in the U.S. I think that there's this culture of passing down recipes generation to generation on little note cards or something, and I don't really think that that... It doesn't happen in my family, at least. The women learn how to cook when they're young. There are these very national recipes that everybody knows. And you are it's not a very individualistic sort of endeavor. It's like, oh, you did this well. It's not too oily. And you cut the greens small enough. Very good. Or not so good. It's tons of oil. Change this next time so that it can look the way that it's supposed to look. <laughs> but yeah, so not very, not really an individual expression it's kind of nice because it then that means that like Persian food instantly takes everyone back to their roots. So in that way, it can be very powerful. One of the key ingredients that I was unfamiliar with in this dish is called kashk. I asked Monet about it. Kashk is really just, I think in English it's called whey. I've never made it myself, but it was really interesting. One of the, the people who joined the workshop, she she was having a hard time finding it in Bloomington and she just gave up and she's like, I'll make cash myself. So she looked up a recipe and you basically just boil yogurt for hours. I don't know much about like milk processes, but it is this very creamy sort of substance. Typically a lot of salt is added. Also, cash is pretty ubiquitous throughout throughout Central Asia and the sort of like I don't, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say Middle East because I don't know if it extends that far, but at least throughout Central Asia and Western China and Iran, there are snacks called court, and it's basically, you take kashk and you dry it, and it's this, like, really salty snack. You wouldn't want to put the whole thing in your mouth because it's, like, super dry and salty, but people love it. Also in Mongolia, a very strong aspect of Mongolian cuisine is dried curds, very similar to kashk. So this ingredient, I think it's very unfamiliar in the Western world, but it's pretty ubiquitous throughout Central Asia and Iran, especially in its different forms. I don't know if I would ever, maybe now I would be interested in taking time to to make it myself because that sounds interesting. But usually we've always just bought it from the store because there are several Iranian dishes that use kashk. There's asharishteh, obviously. There's another another really popular dish called kashke badamjan. Kashk kashk and bottom jar means eggplant. It's this really delicious, salty, kashki eggplant dip, and you usually eat it with bread. To use up our leftover kashk, my partner Carl made this eggplant dish, and it was incredibly delicious. Smooth and saffron-scented with a tangy creaminess from the kashk. We will definitely be making that again. You can also buy it in its dried form and then use it. When I was looking on the internet, there was also Lebanese kashk, but that was dry. And it reminded me of, in Tajikistan, there's this dish. Oh, I'm forgetting the name right now, but it's like, 
there's a lot of shared dishes within Central Asia, but like this dish is very uniquely Tajik. And it's like this kind of croissant type of bread with a lot of oil on top and meat sometimes and vegetables. And then they take dried kashk and they make it liquid again or mix something with it and then throw that on top. And it's all the same sort of substance, but just in different forms. Yeah. yeah. The other unfamiliar ingredient was the noodles. The dish is asherishte. Rishte is just a type of noodle. <laughs> so if you're making asherishte, you buy rishte noodles and you throw them in there. Someone in the workshop, he said that like the closest thing that he could think of to rishte noodles was maybe lo mein because they are really chewy and you have to mix, you have to like pretty consistently mix the ash, otherwise the rishte noodles will just clump together. They're not egg-based. I don't think there's any egg in it. They're yeah. wheat-based noodles and just like thick and chewy. And I always buy an Iranian brand, so probably made yeah. in some factory in Iran and <laughs> shipped over. So I don't know much yeah. about the process. I guess you'd be in trouble. Like, I always break them in half before I add them in. But if you weren't to do that, then I think it would be, like, a really difficult dish to make and consume afterward. Because, yeah, they don't really don't really fall apart in any way. I asked Monet about the significance of making this dish around the Persian New Year holiday of Nowruz. On Nowruz, most people have the tradition of eating a rice dish mixed with a lot of herbs and then fish. So it's not a dish that you eat on Nowruz, but it's definitely considered like a springtime dish. I think because of all of the greens and herbs in it. And also there are other very typical Nowruz foods. Like one in particular that I'm thinking about is called Samano. And it's made from wheat and it's this wheat paste that you have to mix for like a full 24 hours. Otherwise it'll burn. But people eat it because they think that it gives them strength for the spring season. So I think that there is this idea of of needing to like fill yourself with good, healthy, hearty foods after winter and coming into spring. And I think Osh kind of fits that as well. Because it doesn't have any meat in it, but it's definitely like a hearty soup with a lot of beans and cash and it really fills you up. So I think that like the, the greens are one of the things that make it feel really springy, but I think also just that need to like fill yourself up in a really good way coming into the new year might also make it a dish that's good for, for Noru's. I wanted to know more about the holiday itself. It's not an Islamic holiday. It has its roots in Zoroastrianism. So the reason why it's still widely celebrated today is because I think it has its ties to like the Persian Empire's expansion because, yeah, it's celebrated throughout throughout Central Asia. And even, like, when I was living in Mongolia, the Kazakh diaspora, they also celebrated Nowruz. So it's pretty widespread, but doesn't have its roots in Islam. And that might be kind of like a misconception that people have, I think, because there are so many other holidays that are Islamic holidays throughout the region, but Nowruz isn't one of them. And Nowruz lines up with the spring equinox. Yeah, um, and also, yeah, because I guess... I mean, I think that that's how it has its ties to Zoroastrianism because they used, like, the solar calendar. But, yeah, when the spring equinox, equinox happens, like, that's the first day. So it lines up completely with the spring equinox. That's why each year, like, it fluctuates between being on March 20th and March 21st. It sounded like it was a multi-day celebration. I, I'd say that people just kind of, like, start preparing, like, the week's 
you know, the weeks coming up to it, um, because it is just like such a big holiday in a lot of countries. People grow sabzi, so with unpelted wheat, just grow some greens. So like that takes some preparation because you have to do it beforehand. But also Iranians on the Wednesday before Nowruz, they do like a fire jumping sort of celebration called Charshambe Suri, where like the whole idea is you're sort of giving like your sickness or whatever bad stuff that you had inside of you, you're giving that to the fire and then you're kind of getting strength from the fire. So that always happens the Wednesday before. And then Iranians also, 13 days after Nowruz, they do, it's called Siz Bidar. You're supposed to go out in nature and have a picnic with your family or your loved ones. So that's fun too. It's a nice little appreciation of spring and the good weather and spending time together. I guess in that sense, like it kind of encompasses a wider time frame for Iranians. Um, a lot of Iranians prepare a haft scene table. So haft means seven and scene is just the word for like one of the letters for S because there are multiple S's <laughs> in the the Arabic and, and Persian alphabets. But um, yeah, it's like, it's just fun. A lot of people, you know, they put a lot of energy into making it look really beautiful. And each of the different elements has like a symbolic value. So like on my half scene table, I had sumac, which was supposed to represent sunrise, I, I think. Sa'at, which is a clock, which represents time. Sabzi, which were the greens that I grew, which represent growth. Vinegar, the word is sake. I don't remember what that represents, something. Um, seared is garlic, represents health. So like these different objects, as well as a candle for each person in the household. So it's just, it's just fun. And yeah, people put a lot of energy into making it look really nice. And I think my motivations for doing it are a little bit different. I don't actually follow the calendar and I'm, I'm like the second generation of a diaspora community in the US. So like for me, I think that I do it because it like makes me feel very connected to my roots. It reminds me of my grandma. So I'd say that a lot of people do it for that reason as well, because of that connection to a broader community and then maybe like the blessing aspect of it as well. You can do your own variation of things. I know that some people put like photos. There's like the standard objects, but then also like you can put whatever you want on it. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Monet Nazila Gorbani. She recently hosted a cooking workshop making a dish associated with the celebration of Nauru's Persian New Year. After a short break, we'll continue our conversation about the role food plays in helping Monet stay connected to her heritage. Stay with us. I'm Kate Young. This is Earth Eats. Thanks for listening today. We're back with Monet Gorbani, a graduate student in international studies at IU who shared her favorite Persian dish in an online cooking workshop as part of a Nuru's celebration this spring. I asked Monet about the role of food in connecting to family traditions. I'm like second generation and then I'm also mixed. Like my biological dad's side of the family is white. So like I grew up an Iranian in an Iranian household with my mom and my grandma but like my experiences are inevitably different
from someone who's from Iran or even from someone who who's like both of their parents are from Iran you know um and also I feel like every person in a in like a diasporic community um has a unique experience as well like yeah just because my mom came when she was quite young when she was 16 and there's certain things about her that are still like so Iranian but then there's other things that she like really tried to push away to assimilate it just kind of feels like there's been this new sort of social shift where everybody's allowed to be proud of their ethnic identity (laughs) but like 10 years ago that wasn't the case like you bring something weird to school and you're embarrassed about it or you don't want everyone to know that like you can speak another language like you just try to be as normal as possible so like Um, so I think I still, I definitely grew up in that, on that side of things. And like, it's taken me a while to like, really sort of like lean into my, to my Persian identity, which has been really awesome. Um, and one strong component of that is like actually learning how to make the dishes that I grew up eating with my grandma, because I don't know if you noticed like during the workshop, but like, um, cause I was having a hard time teaching how to teach or like uh, a hard time learning how to teach this dish because it's just kind of like you throw this in there and you wait until it looks good but then you know there's all these questions like how much do I put in there like how do I know when the onions are golden enough and those types of things are really hard to explain but growing up like my grandma did that with me where it's like it was like I could help her prepare certain certain ingredients for a dish like it was very it didn't feel super special at the time. Uh, and my grandma, she's still living. She, But she has, um, she's 87 and she has dementia, so we don't really cook together very much anymore. But yeah, I could help her like sit at the table and like prepare greens or there's another dish called lubia polo, which uses green beans. So you have to like cut them up and stuff. Um, so I'd always help her with that aspect of things. But when she was ready to cook, it would just be kind of like her doing her magic for like four hours, you know, because it just takes such a long time to make this stuff, these different dishes. So I didn't really learn step by step how to make these things because I just kind of always relied on like when my grandma's over, she'll make it and I'll have this really delicious dish and enjoy it with her. But it's been special in my adulthood to learn how to make these things myself and then and then be the one to bring it to my family. My grandmother raised me in my really formative years, so I grew up speaking Persian. And then I decided to move to Tajikistan when I was like 19 to improve my Persian because um, when my grandfather passed away when I was like 17, I wasn't speaking Persian like very often. I didn't see them super often and I didn't really know him very much as a person. So when I was older, I was like, I need to fix this. I had to learn my family's language. So. I, I don't mean to go on all these tangents, but it all kind of go, comes together. Um, so went to Tajikistan, improved my Persian. Now I'm able to have, like, now I've really been able to get to know my grandmother a lot more on a personal level. And, um, like, I've been able to hear her stories about her childhood and um, her memories, which it's interesting, like, maybe it's different for different people who have dementia, but her short-term memory is not very good. So we don't really talk about things that happened last week, but we'll talk about things that happened like 50 years ago. But it's awesome because I love to hear it. So so anyway, it's so nice. Like, I don't know. I was just on this like sort of long path of improving my language abilities and learning how to do these things that I grew up with and really didn't want to lose. My younger siblings, I have four younger siblings, and they don't really, 
they don't really have that drive to do that, I suppose. Maybe because my grandma wasn't around a lot when they were young. They don't really speak any Persian. But still, like, they really love the food. So, like, when I come over with, like, after when I made Osh for the workshop, I made it the day before so that I would have some to share with you or to eat with you all at the same time. The day before when I made it, I took I took it to my family. And, like, they really like that because, you know, like, it just, food is, like, a really good a good way to connect and a good way to connect to your roots, I'd say. Um, and it's really special for my grandma, too, because she can't really cook that stuff herself anymore. And my mom doesn't really cook for some reason. She's also just really busy. So it's really special for me to, like, to have learned how to, how to make these foods and then, and then be the person to take it, uh, take it to them, I guess. I can't come every day just because I work and I have a lot of work to do for grad school. So it's really nice to be able to, like, take food that lasts longer than my presence, you know? I can only go for like a couple hours and like hang out, but it's nice to be able to leave something that's meaningful and actually lasts a bit longer, so. I shared with Monet the experience I had of the dish tasting comforting to me too, even though it's not part of my traditions and I had never even tasted it before. And how I usually think about comfort food as something from my own past experiences. I wondered what it was about this dish that offered that feeling of comfort. Especially with like, I don't know, I feel like anytime you start with, with onions, like you already know it's gonna, it's gonna be comforting. I used to work at the Arizona State Senate as a page. Um, do you know what a page is or what they do? They, they're usually like young people who work at state, legislat state legislatures they have them on the, the national level as well, but they wear typically pretty goofy outfits and they run around the legislature getting things for people. They're usually on the floor with state senators or, you know, in the house too, they also have pages and they're like, yeah, shuffling paper, papers to and fro and that sort of yeah. thing. So I was a page when I was like nine, 18, 19, and we had a multicultural day where like everyone was bringing something from their own their own background into the legislature for for lunch. So I asked my grandmother to make Asherishte because it was like my absolute favorite. And she spent all this time making this huge pot of Ash. I brought it in and like nobody touched it. Like not one person ate it. <laughs> and like you can tell that to this day I'm still kind of bitter about it because I then had to bring it all the way back home and you know, in my head, I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? But it was also like, I was so bummed out because like, I guess, I guess it's easier for people to try something if they've seen the process. But I think for a lot of people there, it just kind of looked like this green soup with a lot of beans. But when you try it, it's delicious. But yeah, just not, in, they weren't into it. Monet had mentioned that her mom wasn't much of a cook. She knows it too. Like she always made fun of herself growing up because she, she's just a very low patience type of person. So that doesn't mix well <laughs> with cooking. So that's also what made my grandma, when she came over, that's also what made, you know, her presence so awesome was because like when she was over at the house, like we ate really well, you know, it wasn't just like chicken nuggets in the, from the freezer. That's another reason, I mean, I started learning how to cook when I was really young, partially because my mom's inability to cook, I guess, and just getting tired of frozen foods, but then also 
Um, I think just, like, seeing my grandma and what she was doing, even though, like, she never, like, specifically told me step-by-step, like, tablespoon of this or tablespoon of that, just, like, seeing her in the process. And Persians also really love their gardens, and that's something that my mom was really good at. Uh, She wasn't much of a cook, but she, she grew a lot. Like, we had pomegranate trees plum trees fig trees um a whole garden with like mint and a bunch of different greens we even had like a dragon fruit cactus and like a passion fruit vine like lots of stuff and it was just a regular house in like a a suburban area but um everything that grew out of the ground (laughs) like grew something that we could consume like grapevines so my mom was really good at that so it was just nice, especially for my grandmother, because she used, like, everything as well. Like, she also, in the springtime, when the grapevines would grow new leaves, like, new fresh leaves, she would use those for uh, dolme, or other people say dolma, which is just, like, stuffed grape leaves. And it was just really cool to be able to see her do it, like, from scratch with, like, the grape, you know, the grape leaves from her own backyard. So... Yeah, so to me, that's like a a strong aspect of like Persian cuisine, I'd say, or being able to just like go to the backyard and chop some mint to throw into the, you know, whatever my grandmother was making. And yeah, I, I, I love, I love cooking from like fresh foods and ingredients. So I think that just like being able to see my family do that was, yeah, really influential. Hearing that. It made a lot of sense to me why this dish is appropriate for the celebration of spring's arrival and the Persian New Year. The greens in the dish, spinach, parsley, chives, even the mint, they're all cool weather plants that might be far enough along in a spring garden to harvest in time for the equinox, depending on where you live. I cut some fresh chives and parsley from my own herb garden when I made the dish at home. Our guest today, Monet Nazila Gorbani, is the president of the Nauru's Student Association at Indiana University. She's a second year graduate student in international affairs. Monet is graduating this spring and will be joining the Foreign Service as a Pickering Foreign Affairs Fellow. You can find the recipe for Ashi Reshte at eartheats.org. Six years ago, the state of Illinois embarked on a plan to reduce agriculture fertilizer runoff into waterways. But so far, the efforts haven't worked. Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports on how Illinois and other Mississippi River Basin states got off track. 
A tile drainage pipe ushers runoff from a central Illinois farm into the East Branch Embra River. This water will flow through the Wabash, Ohio, and Mississippi rivers before ending up in the Gulf of Mexico. Nitrogen and phosphorus levels will build as the water passes through more and more fertilizer-laden farmland, which, after nourishing crops, results in a dead zone off the coast of Texas and Louisiana. So this is cereal rye. Joe Rothermel's farm partially drains into that East Branch Embra River. Of his 1,100-acre corn and soybean operation, he plants cover crops on 800 of those acres. Very good for suppressing weeds, holding in moisture. By preventing soil erosion, cover crops help reduce Rothermel's pollution into the river. But despite his and other farmers' efforts, agriculture is still the largest contributor to nutrient runoff, which is why many Mississippi River Basin states have adopted plans to reduce their impact on the Gulf's dead zone, including Illinois. The basic goal of Illinois' nutrient loss reduction strategy is to cut nitrogen and phosphorus loads almost in half. More immediately, the aim is to reduce nitrogen by 15 percent and phosphorus by 25 percent in the next four years. But so far, it's not working. In fact, the situation is getting worse. Unfortunately, right now, no. We're actually going the other way. Trevor Sample is with Illinois' Environmental Protection Agency and coordinates the nutrient loss reduction strategy. He says between 2015 and 2019, nitrogen and phosphorus loads have increased by 13 and 37 percent, respectively, compared to the baseline numbers. And a lot of that is because we're seeing increases in flows. The massive amount of rain in 2019 meant that more water flowed into rivers, 25 percent more to be exact. And with that increased flow comes increased nutrients. But there are other reasons Illinois hasn't yet improved its water quality, including a lack of money. By comparison, Iowa has dedicated $270 million to improving water quality. Jennifer Jones does watershed outreach with University of Illinois Extension. She says that money makes a big difference. Whenever you look at Iowa, for example, it's just incredible to see the work that we've been able to do in Illinois without assistance from you know, maybe the state level as much. While Illinois does fund some conservation programs, there's currently no state money going directly to reducing nutrient runoff. Right now, the state is mostly relying on education. And that's what makes Jones's job so important. She helps make a podcast dedicated to the issue. This is the Illinois Nutrient Loss Reduction Podcast, Episode 25, Uncovering the Benefits of Cover Crops. The podcast covers everything from the benefits of constructed wetlands to which cover crops to plant. More resources like this are needed, says Michael Woods, who manages the Illinois Department of Agriculture's Natural Resources Division. A recent Illinois State University survey found that fewer than half of Illinois farmers had even heard of the strategy. The success of this initiative and the success of protecting our environment while sustaining our agricultural operations really comes down to education. Joe Rothermel, the central Illinois farmer, thinks it will also take financial incentives and technological advances. And he says we can't leave all of that up to farmers. Conservation is not free. 
as farmers, you know, are going to have to pay for this themselves or somebody else is going to have to pay or, or help pay. And I'm not sure it should be totally on the, you know, the farmer. Rothermel says he's hopeful the new Biden administration will contribute federal dollars to conservation programs, including programs aimed at cutting down on farm runoff. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. This story is part five of Harvest Public Media's multi-part series on rivers and waterways in agriculture. Find more on this series at harvestpublicmedia.org. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Monet Nazilo Gorbani and everyone in the Ashereshte workshop. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.